Amen. And thank you, John and worship team, for leading us to this point this morning. And uh, thank you to Dr. Tracy McElhatton. I am required to stay outside in my car um, and completely disconnected from the world, basically, until it's my turn to come in because of all of the stay-at-home orders. And my phone began to blow up with how great Dr. Tracy's uh, little video vignette was. And so apparently she did a great job. So there in your uh, homes, you can just kind of woot woot uh, Dr. Tracy. And I'll look forward to seeing that later. We are on the final day, it seems, of our stay-at-home order here in Johnson County. And uh, the county will begin to open up again tomorrow. It will be a few more weeks, several more weeks, before we're able to gather publicly for worship. Maybe you're wondering why. Um, it turns out that the logistics of transitioning from in-person worship to online worship and online Sunday school are a cakewalk compared to transitioning from online worship, online Sunday school, back to in-person worship. So there's a lot that has to be worked out. We're doing that, um, doing our very best uh, to be wise about that. You'll find out more information on it when, frankly, we know exactly what to share with you. But uh, we are about to enter a new season of our coping with this pandemic uh, here in Johnson County and the United States, and I pray that you'll keep our government leaders um, in your prayers as they try to lead us in making wise decisions. One morning six summers ago, I was eating breakfast uh, before work, and, and my son Caleb called me with a question that had occurred to him while he himself was driving to work. The question was, Dad... How do you know when you've met the one? Well, he had started dating Danny at the beginning of the summer, and both his mother and I knew almost immediately that this appeared to be a terminal case of love. And so I wasn't shocked by the question at all, but here's what I told him. I said, son, I'm about to give you the most accurate, useless information that you've ever heard in your life. Here it is. You just know because you just do. And if you're married, you know that that is accurate information, but it really is useless because there's no data that you can point to that helps someone be able to get to that point where they can just know. Well, on more than one occasion, I've had people going through a trial come into my office and pour out their heart about the real pain that they are experiencing, asking me, Pastor, what do I need to do? And in those instances, I end up providing them accurate, but at least at the time, something that feels like useless information. I say to them, you just need to trust God. Now, now for me, that, that statement is not some kind of meaningless platitude offered in an attempt to kind of put a Band-Aid on a spiritual arterial bleed, uh, making me something like the prophets, the false prophets of Jeremiah's day, who Jeremiah said were trying to heal the wounds of the people lightly. I say that, you just need to trust God, because I really do mean it. When we're in the midst of a trial that just won't end, whose purposes are not clear to us at all, we just have to trust God. But there is a reason why people who are normally confident in their faith struggle with being able to do that 
when they are facing a trial. And therefore, why just simply telling them over and over again, just trust God, ends up not being very helpful to them. So today I want to spend some time thinking about how we get into the pickle during suffering of not being able to trust God when we have always been able to do it before. And we'll do that by looking at the epic speech that God gives when He shows up on the scene in Job 38. Why don't you find Job 38 in your copies of God's Word? My guess if we, is if we did a, a dramatic reading of this entire book, and I mean if we really did it well so that we actually heard the shrieks of pain in Job's words and the utterly unempathetic words of Job's friend, we might listen to the first words that God speaks to Job and kind of ask, what's his deal? Because listening to them is, is sometimes hard to do when you know what Job has been through. Look at Job 38, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And just when you think things couldn't get any worse, uh, they, they do. He goes on in verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all of the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, thinking about how harsh-sounding those words are, let's use our imaginations for a minute. Let's say that your child, a toddler, comes to you crying about a scraped knee, just needing comfort, and you said to them, find the band-aid yourself, wipe your tears yourself. Well, I'd be cold and unloving in anyone's book. But let's say your child, a teenager, full of the answers, came to you heartbroken over the consequences of a poor choice, and you said to them, I love you, and I warned you, so you're going to have to figure this out on your own. Would that be being unloving, or would that be being a good parent? I submit to you that God, in a different kind of way to the scraped knee bad choice uh, scenario, is being a good parent to Job here. When the tsunami of emotional and relational and physical pain hit Job, he responded immediately, declaring his trust in God and his belief in the just character of God. When he loses his wealth and his children, Job declares, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then he loses his physical health and he's challenged by his wife to get over it, to just die and curse God. And Job says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil? Later in his first debate with his friends, 
Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job's default response over and over again early on in this journey is to trust God. But as his pain deepens and as his friends say more and more inaccurate and hurtful things, Job starts to declare that God has taken away his right, has refused him justice. And his goal shifts from from blessing the name of the Lord to wanting to know why. Job grows arrogant, actually, in his attitude toward God. By demanding that God explain his suffering, he is assuming that he himself can be as wise as God, that he, a sinner born into sin and a sinful world like the rest of us, can understand perfectly the ways of God if he just knew what those ways were. So God is showing up here and saying, okay, you know so much, tell me, Job, this. And he unleashes an extended string of rhetorical questions for which Job can clearly have no answer. But the purpose of these questions isn't to humiliate or to bully. The purpose of these questions is to restore Job's trust by changing Job's focus from why, listen to me, from why to who. Because if you can understand who, you can cope with the why. Let's walk through Job's response to God so we can see clearly what God is doing here. The the most helpful framework I've run across to kind of put some handles on this extended speech by God to Job is uh, from the work of the Old Testament scholar David McKenna, and that's what we're going to use to kind of break down the major pieces of God's speech to Job here. The first set of questions that Job asks, or that, that that Job is asked by God is, do you know the sources from which the universe began? Now, we've already seen a a handful of the questions that God is asking, and all of the questions that flow from here run in a similar vein. Do you know when I laid the earth's foundations, Job? Have you, like me, imposed limits on the sea? Have you commanded mornings to begin? Have you, Job, filled the oceans? Have you determined where the sun goes at night? Because I have. And then the next set of questions asked of Job is, do you understand the systems upon which the earth depends? Does Job know where God keeps the snow and the hail that stops the world's greatest armies in their tracks? Does Job know how God brings rain to replenish the earth? Does he order the seasons that freeze that same rain as hard as stone? And then the final set of questions asked of Job is, do you appreciate the specialty by which animals are distinguished? God poses questions to Job concerning a dozen different animals, but the emphasis, and this is important, is God's care for each of them. Read it on your own. You'll be able to see that very clearly. Each of these animals is valued and appreciated and tended to by God. Now, let's remember the purpose of these questions 
has been to restore Job's trust by focusing on who and not focusing on the why. So how do these questions accomplish this? In one way, I think, that we've probably already seen. Job is being reminded by God, not so much of his power and his might, but he's being reminded of God's providential care of his creation. So the point being made by God is that if he can be trusted with superintending the intricate details of creation, he can be trusted in superintending the intricate details of an individual's life. Job had lost sight of the who to whom he was addressing all of these questions that have made up the bulk of Job's speech in this book. Job had once seen God as purposeful in his creation, pervasive in his control, personal in his care. He knew at one point who God was, but in his pain, he had lost sight of that and had started to ask why. And when you lose sight of who, you begin to ask why, and that will begin to unravel your faith. The reason is that making why your reference point in life places the focus on yourself and not on God. It, in fact, elevates you. The moment that you ask why, you at best assume equality with God, and at worst, the complexities and mysteries of the why all overwhelm you and end up embittering you toward God and push you towards abandoning the God that you believe has abandoned you. So God is just reframing Job's point of reference from why to who. Who he, as God, really is. But not just who am I as God, but also who, Job, are you? The question actually cuts two ways. First, and obviously, it is an effort by God to define the distinction between him and Job. God is God and Job is not. But second, it is an effort to define the distinction between Job and the rest of creation. It would have been impossible for Job to hear God's words regarding his creation without understanding that he, Job himself, was also a part of that creation. And it would have been impossible for him to hear God's word regarding creation without understanding that he himself, as a human being, occupied a special place, a preeminent place in that creation. So if the answer to who is God, the answer to who am I is his special creation. And if God lovingly superintended the details of mountain goats and hawks and lion cubs, he would even more so lovingly superintend the details of Job's life. And Job gets it. In fact, he acknowledges it, and he repents for having ever lost sight of it. In Job 40, verse 3, Job answers the Lord after this speech and said, Behold, I'm of small account... What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So now, God has shifted Job's focus back to God himself. And with that done, God must be ready to, to answer the why. Say, okay, Job, now that you know who I am, 
Let me give you the why. Uh, you'd think, but that's not what God does. He has other ideas. He actually launches into another series of questions, not answers. So now what's God up to? And again, the knee-jerk reaction to this would be that God is just bullying Job, humiliating Job, piling on. But that misses that Job has only received part one of a two-part response from God to everything that Job has said to this point in the book. The second part is to remind him that sometimes in life, all we'll have is the who. We will never have the why, and we'll just have to trust him with it. Let me show you how that plays out. The, the first part of, of, of God's second speech to Job is kind of a creation tour de force, a survey of the length and breadth of creation. The second part of God's speech to Job is essentially returning to the question of why and asking Job, if you were me, Job, how would you do it? How would you run things? And he gives him three points to consider. The first point is would, would you... Let all the wicked people in the world just have it. I mean, would you lower the boom on them and give them what they deserve? You see that in verses 6 through 9 of Job 40. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? What wisdom would you use, Job? What would be your standard of justice? How would you exercise your power? How would you speak to someone like you right now? Job has raised moral and ethical questions about God, and so God is now saying, okay, well, you take a shot. We've established that your knowledge is limited, so how would you, with that limited knowledge, run things? And I think our tendency, if asked that same kind of question, would you lower the boom on the wicked, is to say, you bet I would, absolutely. I'd let the wicked have it. But God has set him up with the first question, a question that on the surface seems very black and white, would you punish the wicked? And now he introduces the, the notion of complexity. And he does that by using the remaining portion of his speech to focus on two animals, behemoth and Leviathan. Now, folks like to debate if these are real creatures or mythological creatures, and if real creatures, then what on earth are they? And I, I believe, as I read the book, that we are to understand Behemoth and Leviathan as real creatures. I, I think that makes the best sense of the passage. It would be odd for that first part of God's speech about creation to be so rooted in reality, and then suddenly, on a dime, it become entirely mythological. So I, I think that the animals that are being discussed here are real animals that Job really had experience with. But I think what the animals actually were is completely unimportant. What's important, why God is using them here, is for what they represent metaphorically in the world in which Job lived. They represent mystery and evil. Behemoth, mystery. Leviathan, evil. Of, of behemoth, God asked Job's, would you create that? Would you make that? And he goes on to describe a creature that seems put together by committee. 
seems to have no discernible purpose. He eats grass like an ox. He's as strong as an ox, but he can't be led and tamed like an ox. He can't be uh, trained to, to, to work a plow like an ox. He serves no discernible purpose. Many scholars think that what God is describing in Job 15, 40, 15 through 24 is a hippopotamus. And so, and so Job, he's saying, would you create that if you were me? Would you make a hippopotamus even though all it seems to do is roll around in marshes and eat grass? Before Job can figure that out, he switches to Leviathan. Now some think that God is describing in hyperbolic terms a crocodile. Whatever it is, it is clearly a terrifying and dangerous beast. And in Jewish and Babylonian literature, it represented pure evil. And that's what Job would have been focusing on, that it represented evil. And so God is saying, Job, if you were me, would you create that? And what he's asking is this. Job, if you were me, would you create a world that allowed for evil? Remember, he started this second speech by saying, what would you do to the wicked? And that now is being led to the real question at hand. If you were me and in charge of the world, would you allow evil to exist? So, so Job has asked why. And God has handed him the keys to the car. He says, you tell me, Job, what would you do? And would you do it better? And Job, as we'll see next week, says, I'm good with you being in charge. There's knowledge I don't have. There's complexity to a world, mystery and evil that I'll never understand. So I'm good with you being in charge. So, so what has Job learned? Job has learned that if you can settle the answer of who, as a sovereign, loving God, that you can then trust Him with the why, even if you never know what that why is. But he's reached that conclusion at a new and deeper level of understanding of what that means. This is where he was at the beginning, but this journey has taken him to a more foundational understanding of that, a new and deeper level of understanding that Job would never have reached if he hadn't suffered. Job settled the who, and so he could trust God with the why. That's the reason he backs away and says, God, I will bless you and trust you. Most of you know that Julie and I are looking forward to welcoming our first grandchild, a girl, in three months. And most of you know that our family's journey of getting to this hopeful moment involved watching our oldest, Caleb, and his wife, Danny, wrestle with infertility and multiple miscarriages. We don't know why. We don't know why biologically. We don't know why spiritually. I mean, when I say we don't know why we've gone through this, we don't know why. So we also don't know why this baby, this girl, and not the other babies. We have no clue. But the moment that I will remember most in all of this, at least to this point, is something 
that Caleb said to me after the fourth miscarriage last summer, uh, a pregnancy that had progressed to the point that we were all looking forward very soon to being able to let people know what was going on. He said to me after, after that loss, I don't know how someone can go through this and not believe that God is absolutely sovereign. That belief, he said, doesn't cause me problems. It gives me comfort because it lets me know that there's a purpose to all of this. In short, Caleb figured out the who so he could trust God with the why. This understanding of God is my north star. It is the means by which I navigate my life. People say of me a lot, nothing seems to bother you. Not true. You always seem so low-key. Not true. You seem so relaxed no matter what's going on around you. None of that's true. None of that's true for me at all. But over the years, God has given me the grace to always quickly shift my attention when I don't understand or when I'm going through difficulty to the who. Who's behind all of this? The one that is behind all of this is the God who redeemed me from my sin. The, the one who is behind all of this has given me blessings in this life that are embarrassing. The, the God who, who is behind this, this difficulty, this trial that I'm facing, is the God whose resources spiritually have always been sufficient for me. And so I have been able to get to where I am in life because God has, has done me the grace of being able to quickly turn my attention to the who in a difficult time. And because of who he is, I am, I'm learning over and over again that I can trust him with the why, even when I don't understand the why. So does this mean that we can never ask why? I don't think so at all. I don't think that's the point of God's chat with Job. I think the point is that we, when we ask why, we must never lose sight of the who. And if we can just pump our brakes in our pain for just a bit and think on Him rather than our problem and rather than the difficulty and rather than all the questions around it, but instead in all of that, use that as a, as a trigger to cause our minds to, to be set on things above and not things below. If we can just do that long enough, we will remember just how trustworthy he is. And we can lean on him to get us through our trial for his glory. If you're listening to us today, joining us for this online worship service, it may be that you don't know the glory of this God, that you have never 
fixed your full and complete attention and allegiance on him by surrendering yourself to Jesus Christ. If that's the case, if you've never given yourself to Christ as Savior, who is the one that ultimately tells us what God is like, then we encourage you right now to email us at justask at bluevalleybaptist.org. Or if you find yourself going through a trial and you just need somebody to walk with you through it, to, to hang on to you as you hang on to God and to remind you just how trustworthy He is, you email us as well and we'll be happy to reach out to you and talk to you and pray for you um, as soon as we possibly can. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. You are good and your mercy endures forever. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts higher than my thoughts. You are God. And yet, as Christ, you didn't view equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. To show me ultimately exactly who God is. A God of mercy, a God of grace, who longs to be restored to us through the forgiveness of our sin. So Father, in the midst of trial and difficulty, I remember that I'm saved. That I have a Savior who left heaven to redeem me. And my prayer is, Father, is that if there's anyone here today who doesn't have that same assurance, as they face some trial we may not be aware of or just face the uncertainty of a pandemic in our world, that they will find you through Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.